G'day, Starlo here. In this episode of Cutting Edge Fishing Wisdom, I want to share with you some thoughts on fishing with hard-bodied lures made from metal, plastic or wood. Personally, I find it difficult to nominate a more thrilling moment in the wide world of recreational fishing than that urgent, angry, bone-jarring impact of a decent fish crunching down onto a hard-bodied lure. It matters very little to me whether the fish in question is a rust-hued mangrove jack, a speckled rainbow trout, a chrome-plated barramundi, a blue-nosed brim, or a hulking great Murray cod. It's all good. Don't get me wrong, I'm smitten with tweaking soft plastics and probably do more of that than any other style of lure fishing. But bites on softies tend to run the gamut of lower intensities from the most subtle of pickups that barely register as a trembling tick in the semi-taut line to somewhat more energetic whacks and insistent tugs. Rarely, however, do they have that same spine-tingling, hair-raising electricity as the crunch of teeth and bone suddenly clamping down like a bear trap onto wood, plastic or metal. When this impact's transmitted via a taut length of braided gel-spun line, it's magnified even further. I'm constantly reminded of that wonderful line from the early advertising blurb accompanying the original Spiderwire braid which spoke about strikes when using this stuff as being akin to running over a brick with a lawnmower. (laughs) It's an apt metaphor for fishing hard bodies, especially on braid. Hard-bodied lures have been around for a very long time. They most likely evolved from the earliest rudimentary fish hooks, which were typically carved from bone, shell, fire-hardened wood or even stone by prehistoric hunter-gatherers. Often these simple hooks lashed to a length of plaited hair, plant fibre or vine were baited with a sliver of meat, if such a luxury could be spared. But those early fishers soon discovered that a bare hook would sometimes attract bites, especially if it was jigged seductively in front of a hungry fish. (laughs) There were probably a few more fish around in those days too. Hooks made from shiny materials like polished bone or slivers of seashell were found to be the most likely to draw interest. Being able to tempt and catch fish in this way reduced the need for bait, simplifying the whole process and also removing the sacrifice of those valuable little scraps of protein that had previously been skewered onto hooks and fed to fish instead of satisfying human hunger pangs. Thus, lure fishing was born. From ornate mother-of-pearl jigs trolled behind Polynesian war canoes to the beautifully crafted curlicues of oyster shell employed as hooks by some indigenous Australian fishers, early lures took on a myriad of forms. But their underlying intent was always the same, to fool a fish into biting something inedible. Not much has changed. A lure remains no more than a lie told by a fisherman to a fish. The more convincing that lie is, the more easily it's swallowed. In modern soft plastics and some fur and feather flies, such as the articulated game changers, we've arguably arrived at the most convincing fish lies yet devised by the inventive minds of men and women. The best of these offerings not only look and act like living critters, they're also soft and yielding to the touch or bite. 
They can even be scented and flavoured to complete the illusion. No wonder they work so well and are often eaten while simply sinking through the water column or even lying inert on the bottom. With hard-bodied lures, the lie or con tends to be uncovered much earlier in the process, when something that should be soft, squishy and tasty turns out to be hard, sharp and unyielding instead, a striking fish will often attempt to abort the mission and reject the item. They wake up to the lie almost immediately upon contact. That's why most hard-bodied lures are fitted with well-exposed or even trailing hooks, often multiple sets of trebles. These hard lures rely on that first moment of impact to hopefully pin their target, as the fish is much less likely to hang on for very long, nor to come back for a second or third attack, as they might with softies or flies. There are exceptions, of course, extremely lifelike replicas of hard-shelled prey like crabs or mussels are often actively chewed on by fish, rather like a soft plastic. The fish expect these tidbits to be crunchy and even spiky, so they keep right on trying to swallow the lie. This can work in an angler's favour. It's a big part of why things like the cranker crab and the muss have been so successful. In the majority of cases, however, a hard-bodied lie needs to be told faster, with less embellishment of detail, and the con job completed more quickly than is often the case with softies and flies. Think of a carnival sideshow huckster hiding a pea under one of three upturned cups, then quickly shuffling the cups about on the table. Where's the pea now? (laughs) Were you watching closely enough to track it? Chances are, if the performer is any good at the trick, you'll get it wrong. That's basically how hard-bodied lures work. We're effectively saying to a predator, look, a little fish, quick, grab it before it gets away. And then we'd better hope that those swinging hook points are sharp enough to seal the deal at the first grab. Understanding these subtle differences between fishing with different styles of lures can have a big impact on your success rates. They also help to focus our attention on what's really important. Slower, natural, lifelike presentations with soft plastics or flies and possibly a slightly delayed strike on the take versus faster, more impressionistic presentations and sleight of hand with hard-bodied lures, along with the need to strike quickly and have sharp hooks in order to seal the deal. These differences are really important. There are so many different styles of hard-bodied lures on our tackle store shelves these days and it'd be almost impossible to list them all. There are metal jigs, baitfish profiles, slugs, slices, spoons, spinners, vibes, blades, skirted heads, stick baits, poppers, sliders, crankbaits, minnows, plugs, crawlers, buzz baits, chatter baits, spinner baits, and so on it goes, almost ad infinitum. Furthermore, each class or category seems to have at least half a dozen different subgroups, not to mention a bunch of different names, depending on who you talk to and what part of the world you live in. It can all become extremely confusing. However, one way to cut the selection process down to size is simply to look at whether a hard-bodied lure sinks or floats. Basically, every hard lure on the market today will either float or sink when it's dropped into the water. Sure, there are the so-called suspenders or suspending lures too, although a lure that truly suspends is actually pretty rare. Most of them either sink or rise very slowly in the water column when they're paused during a retrieve. And that sink or rise rate will vary depending on the density and even the temperature of the water, 
not to mention leader material and thickness, whether you use a clip, the gauge of the hooks and rings and so on. It's an often overlooked fact too that a lure which rises slowly in salt water on the pores may actually sink slowly in fresh water. With hard-bodied lures being such a huge subject, covering such a multitude of options, I'm going to narrow it down for the rest of this podcast and concentrate only on those hard lures that actually float at rest, and especially on the so-called floating diving models of crankbaits. We can come back in the future and look at some of the other options. We can further divide floating lures into those that are designed to stay on or very near the surface when they're retrieved, things like poppers, sliders and wake baits, and those that dive down to various running depths, particularly the plugs and minnows. Let's focus for now on the divers. In the vast majority of cases, this neat diving trick is achieved thanks to a bib or lip fitted to the front of the lure or incorporated into its body shape. This lip acts as a paravane, and when the lure is pulled through the water, or even just held against the current, it causes the lure to dive. You can get a rough idea of how deep a lure is likely to dive by looking at the size and orientation of that bib. The larger that bib or lip is, the more it sticks straight out in front of the lure, the deeper the lure will tend to dive. Smaller bibs angled down under the body will generally make a lure run at a shallower depth. Of course, the inherent buoyancy of the lure also plays a role. Very buoyant lures don't tend to dive as deeply and will also rise much faster in the water column when the retrieve is slowed or stopped. Interestingly, the battle of physics going on between the diving forces exerted by water flowing over the bib and around the lure's body versus that inherent buoyancy of the body is one of the main things that imparts action to a floating diving lure. That's why sinking bib lures often don't swim quite as seductively as their floating stablemates, especially at lower speeds. It's no accident that lures with a very pronounced and strong side-to-side sway, especially at low speed, tend to have bigger, flatter bibs and highly buoyant bodies, while those with tighter actions and more body roll often exhibit smaller bibs and slightly less buoyancy. Those buoyant, big-lipped, wide-kicking wobblers are also less likely to be able to handle a bit of extra speed without losing their grip on the water and blowing out than a smaller-lipped, less buoyant model. It's all about horses for courses. Naturally, there are plenty of exceptions to these rules, but they do make a pretty good starting point for assessing the likely action of a lure that you're looking at in a shop or a catalogue. But you know what? In the end, there's simply no substitute for giving them a swim and having a good look, ideally in clear water. While you're at it, you'll hopefully learn how to put on a more convincing puppet show. (laughs) I can't claim to have invented the very apt analogy of putting on a puppet show when talking about how best to work or present a lure. I first heard the term used by my wife Jo during presentations she was making to groups of novice anglers. I liked it, (laughs) so I've stolen it. It's a very clever description because that's exactly what we need to be doing every single time we cast or troll a lure, putting on a convincing puppet show for our fishy audience. To do this, we need to think about exactly what it is we're trying to represent with our lure. Is it a healthy fish swimming along and minding its own business? 
Is it a feeding forage fish chasing down smaller prey or nosing along the bottom in search of an item of food? Or is it a sick, injured and dying fish kicking and flashing in its final death throes? If it's meant to be a yabby, what do yabbies do? Crawl along the bottom? Flick their tails and dart up through the water before gliding back down to hide? Sit in one spot and wave their claws menacingly? <laughs> if we're mimicking a prawn, how should we move that lure? Steady and straight through midwater, propelled by its many kicking legs? Suddenly snapping its tail and shooting backwards? Flicking across the surface in a blind panic? <laughs> the truth is that any and all of these options might be the correct answer on the day. We need to discover exactly what it is that pushes the target predator's buttons, makes it see red, and induces that killer rush of blood that results in a crunching strike and a solid hookup. But we're unlikely to get it right or be able to repeat the successful pattern unless we constantly think about what we're doing and put some effort into making our puppet show look real. Pull the strings, make the puppet dance, watch how it behaves, and learn to control it. That's the single biggest tip I can ever give you when it comes to using any style of lure or fly, including hard bodies. Get your head around that process, and you will catch a lot more fish on lures. I guarantee it. Finally, I'll give you three more crucial lessons in lure fishing that apply to all styles of lures but are especially relevant to floating diving crankbaits or hard bodies. Firstly, avoid attacking the target fish with your lure. Very few big dangerous predators expect their vulnerable prey to come rushing straight at them. If you can see your target, or even if you can only guess at its precise location and orientation, try to present your lure so that it looks as if it's attempting to avoid or even actively escape from the predator. That means crossing ahead of it, or better still, angling away from it. This approach is far more likely to induce a chase response and a strike than swimming your lure straight at the predator. It's amazing how much difference this can make. Secondly, don't get locked into the idea that a floating diving lure can only work in water as deep or deeper than its maximum running depth. In other words, if you're using a lure capable of diving to three metres on a long cast and retrieve, don't be afraid to use it in shallower areas. There are many ways of controlling the depth of which the lure actually runs. Rod angles and retrieve rates are the most important of these. By keeping your rod tip up and not cranking too fast, it's possible to hold a lure much higher in the water column than its optimum running depth. And besides, having it make occasional contact with the bottom and kicking up a puff of sand or mud can be a highly effective strategy, especially on target species like flathead. This knowledge and the ability to control the depth of your lure can be extremely handy for working across a shallow flat. Rod held high, slow cranking, regular stops, then crash diving it down a steep drop-off, lower the rod and retrieve faster. In reverse, it's a great way for shore-based anglers to avoid constantly weeding up or getting snagged near the end of every retrieve. Slow down, raise your rod tip and even stop winding and let the lure rise in the water column before bringing it in over the weed bed. Floating diving lures are incredibly versatile in this regard. Use that versatility. Which brings us rather neatly to my very last tip. 
and perhaps the most important one, and it can be summed up quite simply. The pause is your friend. (laughs) Watch fish in an aquarium. Very few of them, apart from some pelagic species and maybe sharks, swim constantly. Most move a little bit, then stop and hover or slowly sink or rise in the water before swimming forward again, often at a different speed, or turning and backtracking. Their pace and direction is constantly changing from quite quick to dead stop. Mimic this behaviour with your lure puppet. Incorporate stops and starts in the retrieve. Use the rod tip to impart additional movement and action. If you're trolling, hold the outfit in your hand and pump or sweep the rod before dropping slack back to the lure to alter its speed and action. In short, work it, baby. Many fish will hit a lure on the pause. (laughs) You better hope those hooks are sharp, though. And even more will nail a lure the moment it begins to move again straight after a pause. In some cases, and on certain species, southern black brim are a classic example, you can potentially increase your strike rate by up to tenfold by simply incorporating pauses into the retrieve. Or you can go from a donut day to a red letter one. Never forget it. The pause is your friend. My main message to you is this. Lure fishing should never become a mechanical chuck-and-chance or cast-and-crank routine. On every cast and every troll run, you should be thinking about exactly what your lure is doing out there on the end of the line, how it'll look to the fish, and what you can do from your end to make it appear more lifelike and vulnerable to a potential predator. Adopt this mindset, become a hunter, and your success will improve dramatically. I can just about promise it. Until next time, happy hunting and tight lines. And don't forget that you can help me to produce more content like this by buying me a coffee or shouting me a beer. (laughs) Just go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Starlo. Cheers. (laughs) 